Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Mary Wilde, a Freudian cinephile from Montreal and the creator of Projections. Projections is a series on film and psychoanalysis held at the Freud Museum, London. Projections is also a podcast that Mary Wilde co-hosts with Sarah Cleaver. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Well, um, actually, I, I'd like to start with a dream, if possible. Wonderful. As it happens, I had the most extraordinary dream last night. Um, I went to bed. Well, I should I should probably just set it up. I the, the, the previous day I had not slept for about thirty six hours, and I was feeling extremely tired, but also quite. Um, like wired as well, so I wasn't able to easily fall asleep. So I have this app on my phone where I've just got lovely calming, crashing, wavy sounds. Mm. Put that on, and that just literally set me off into a really deep sleep. And then my dream was that um, I met this cult, like sort of like, um, I, I don't know if they were practicing a, the, the occult or what they were doing, but they were, I think they were magicians. And they said, oh, we'd like to perform a ritual in your home, but you don't, you know, if, if you take our service, you don't have to do anything. We just show up at a certain time. We bring all our equipment. We have props. Um, we set up everything for you, and we cast a spell. And I was like, I was like okay, yes, let's do it. Let's do it. And, um, and sure enough, uh, they turned up at the exact time I told them. And it was so theatrical. They had these extraordinary uh, curtains. It was very cinematic, like thick velvet red curtains, like very, very Lynchian. And they draped over, across all of my walls to, to create this sense of this new space. And uh, they all gathered round and held hands in a circle. And I was in the middle. <laughs> and they were chanting something. And then somehow I went into this weird days like I was hypnotized and then I came out of it and I was living another day but somehow I was still within their spell it was like really weird <laughs> I don't know it's so bizarre and then just before I woke up all, a bunch of other things happened and just before I woke, woke up um, I asked someone I wonder if their spell worked and then just as I woke up 
I also in my dream vis- had the vision of myself waking up from their ritual. <laughs> it was bizarre. That's <laughs> a wonderful dream. Yeah. What do you think of it? I, I, I don't know. I feel a bit like it, it really uh, blew me away. It, it kind of, it, I felt very mesmerized by it when I woke up because the details were so strong. I could see the colors and I remember their faces. It, I didn't find it scary at all because I probably because I've been completely desensitized from watching all, <laughs> too many horror movies. <laughs> so um, it didn't scare me. I I I liked it. I liked it. There was some. I liked their little ritual. I liked that they were so professional. <laughs> and it sounds like they had great aesthetics. Yes, they did. Yeah, they looked very good, and they whatever. It was I was working through in my dream, I think was maybe linked. There might have been some residual connections with a a documentary I watched just before falling asleep, which was about Zach Posen, Mm -hmm. the the fashion designer. And there were lots of scenes in there of him creating and his rituals of like cutting fabric and stitching and designing and... and there was some. I mean, I feel like there was maybe a link with that. There was something magic, because he also then designed a fantastic dress for Claire Danes, which she wore at the uh, Met Gala uh, three years ago, and it was a Cinderella t- style dress, very glittering, kind of LED dress. And uh, I always remember thinking, that's true magic. You know, that's that to me is like so transformative. It's stunning. And um, yeah, I don't know. I'm saying all kinds of things and I have no idea (laughs) if I'll get to anywhere that you think is interesting. It's absolutely interesting. Yeah, that dress like glowed in the dark, right? Yes, Yes, exactly. And you said it, it, well, of course you brought up Lynch and I know that I saw that you were uh, doing a Lynch course coming up. That is right, yeah. I run a lecture series at the Freud Museum called Projections. So obviously a play on on, on the term from cinema and psychoanalysis. And uh, yeah, it's been running now, going on its seventh year. Wow. Really interesting. And so it's basically just applying psychoanalytic ideas and principles to approach film interpretations, very personal. So it's never really trying to arrive at a definitive, like critical reading of the film. It's more just tools to, it's more like pop psychoanalysis, I would qualify it, try and uh, in a very accessible way communicate mainly Freudian, but also some Lacanian, Jungian ideas to film watchers, cinephiles, film buffs, all, you know, a, a range of people coming to cinema and kind of trying to empower them through psychoanalysis so that they have more enriched experience and yeah and and I've got yeah Lynch is coming up in January that's on the 12th of Jan at the Freud Museum in London it's uh, part of their uncanny exhibition which is on right now so I'm focusing on six titles uh, in the in the Lynch canon that I find especially uncanny and uh, it's yeah it's interesting because I started my very first course I taught there was on David Lynch, so it's nice to come back and revisit. And how did you get started in the first place, like applying psychoanalytic theory to film? Oh, God. Um, yeah, that's a. 
funny one. I think for me, I was I was initially a psychology student back in Canada, where I'm from, in Montreal, and uh, I studied psychology at university. I discovered Freud's ideas, you know, in my courses, and that became my gateway to cinephilia. Like I wasn't really, I mean, I liked the cinema, I liked going to the cinema, but I didn't really know that much about it. I didn't, I hadn't really found my feet in it. And uh, th that type of thinking helped me to discover more cinema. So um, that it all kind of started from there, the interest. And then from there, I just did like, I went on to do um, write uh, a master's dissertation on Marilyn Monroe from a Lacanian perspective. And then from there, I then started working in the film industry, which, uh, had its up and ups and downs. It was. Uh, it's a very. It's a very weird industry, <laughs> and um, I always wanted to, to create something interesting and contribute in some way that I could relate to, not just go through the motions of it. And uh, I just. I, I thought, wow, it would be really fun to do something really in depth and and apply my kind of academic ideas to, to cinema and. That's how it kind of took off. I pitched the idea to the Freud Museum in 2012, and and they were, yeah, they were excited. That's great. What was uh, what was your thesis like, Marilyn Monroe, from a Lacanian perspective? That was cool. It was it was a good re research for me because I, um, I basically made the, the central idea in the thesis was that um, the title of the thesis is. Uh, Marilyn Monroe does not exist, and it's uh, working on the assumption of like, kind of like the the masquerade, you know, the Joan Riviere paper, and but also like how Norma Jean was so very very instrumental in building her own mask and her own performance and her own uh, yeah I guess masquerade. Mm -hmm. And uh, but also looking at her structure, like her, let's say, psychological or pathological structure through uh, the framework of hysteria. I feel like she she fit a very for me she she felt it, she fell into a hysteric structure in a Lacanian sense. And um, yeah, it was a good it was it was great. I got to watch a lot of her films. I studied a lot of her photographs. She was much much more comfortable in front of a still camera working with photographers than she ever was performing in front of, you know, on, on a film set. <laughs> um, she had terrible anxiety. She, she had, she had a, she had debilitating anxiety about stuttering. She worked with a voice coach, um, people who frankly were actually quite toxic for her, just basically exacerbated her uh, lack of self-esteem. But, um, and also she was an addict. So she was a really interesting subject to kind of look at in a very theoretical way, of course. Um, yeah, it was good. Is this a book? This needs to be a book. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a book. It's not a book. It's just a dusty old uh, thesis somewhere in my files. But maybe I should revisit that because I feel like I could... You know, it's, it's so funny. My thinking of her evolves all the time. It's never static. 
So occasionally I'll go back and look at some things, just looking up some references. And then I stumbled on a paragraph and I think, wow, I've completely changed my idea about this particular thing. And it may, she's so fluid for me, you know? Um, yeah, <laughs> maybe, I, maybe I should revisit it in some capacity. The thing with me is I'm not really that literary. Like I don't, I don't feel that confident just in a straight uh, writing format. I'm more of a video person. So um, like I, I actually have this YouTube channel where I've, for a few years ago I was much more uh, diligent with it than I am now, but I used to upload little video clips at montages I would make repurposed film footage, uh, you know, film scenes and music that I would just mess around with and um, make little bits of clips. And I'm much more at ease in the video format, I would say. But so maybe I would, yeah, I'd love to, uh, I'd love to do something, maybe like a, an experimental documentary about Marilyn. Yeah, that would be great because I think people would really love it. And I think, like you're saying, that uh, so it's so easy to project upon her like a great, she's a great like feminine masquerade, you know. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah, I agree. It's, she's, she, that's why she's so cinegenic because, as you exactly said, she she's so amenable for projection. She just invites the best performers are, I think, in the cinema. They're the most, the most cinegenic performers are the ones that present you with not something definite, but something extremely like vague and, and like ambivalent, but also very, very compelling to look at so that now your fantasy life is completely activated and you're just like projecting everything onto them, you know? Like Marlon Brando, he's very cinegenic and people, people like Joaquin Phoenix and yeah, those kinds of people are great. Have you seen that new Joker movie? Yeah, <laughs> I would love it. I haven't seen it yet, but the the listservs, the psychoanalytic listservs, have been going crazy for it. Yeah, I strongly recommend it to you. It's it. There's a lot in it. I think for for everyone, um, especially from a psychoanalytic point of view, I agree with your listeners. I think absolutely. There's so much food for thought. Do you, do you happen to like uh, him as a performer? I do. Uh, oh, then you'll love it. If you if you already like him, then I think you're in for a treat. He's so extraordinary. <laughs> so what are you working on now? Um, so now I um, I'm still do, obviously doing my uh, Freud Museum lectures. I also co-host a podcast myself with my friend Sarah, um, Sarah Cleaver. Um, she sort of, she was sort of like the mastermind behind it. Initially, she set it all up, and she had this great vision for it. And um, and I, I just sort of jumped on board. And now we um, basically upload episodes where we have dialogues on uh, film from a psychoanalytic perspective. It's not too, it's not too academic or anything. It's it's meant to be a little bit colloquial. Sometimes we like go off piece. But, you know, the best uh, discussions always do, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and so and we, we, we try to group our subjects through, uh, like, the topics that we choose through various themes. So the first season we uploaded episodes on um, cinematic representations of mental illness. And then 
we moved on to fashion films. And now we're uploading new episodes in our third season uh, to do with women in horror films. And we also occasionally put out the, uh, the odd review of a film festival we've been to or new releases like Joker. We actually have a Joker episode. Oh, you do? Yeah, <laughs> I'll have to hear that. I uh, I lis listened to the first one for the women in horror. Where did you come about with that idea? Oh well, Sarah and I um, we sort of grew our friendship, I think, uh, very much through the cinema and especially horror films. We're both big fans of the of the genre, and we just adore basically like some of the most extreme stuff out there we we we're pretty um we're pretty hardcore <laughs> when it comes to our appreciation of horror cinema and we both find we agree that engaging with the horror medium especially through film is quite cathartic because we get a chance to confront a lot of like fears that we might not feel comfortable uh confronting in a in a different way, even even in a traditional therapeutic way, and uh, and through the horror through the horror engagement, we're actually accessing a lot of stuff that is quite embedded, and but it's it feels safe at the same time. Weirdly enough, because we we we, we always appreciate that it's just it's just a movie, like it's not going to hurt us, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've. Uh, yeah, we feel we feel like horror movies saved our lives, basically. I know that sounds really dramatic. No, I mean I think psychoanalysis saved my life. So <laughs> it sounds similar in that it's like you know this contained setting where it's safe to like bring up these really deep-rooted emotions like fear and terror and that sort of thing. But like it's a it's a safe space to do that where you're not actually going to enact it or nothing's actually hurting you. Exactly. Yeah, especially when a lot of um, there's so many horror movies out there that engage uh, fantasies that are quite taboo, let's say outside of the narrative of horror. And that can feel quite repressive sometimes when certain subjects are, are like off limits. But the language of horror just has it, it just gives you license to explore so much, I feel, you know, and and we love that about about horror and we especially love seeing um, stories about women as, as well like how they're represented we like we like that it, it's such an ambivalent spectrum of all kinds of representation from uh, like you know ranging from victim to perpetrator like uh, the whole gamut and we appreciate that because um, yeah it's just it's, it's kind of fun it's a, there's a big adventure there where all kinds of things are possible you know yeah and people have a lot of feelings about women yeah, yeah, they do. <laughs> a lot of opinions. <laughs> For sure. It reminds me of, too, I've been writing this book uh, called Scansion in Psychoanalysis and Art, and um, I have a chapter where I'm looking at film, and it starts with specifically experimental film. But I, I'd never really, like like you said in the beginning, like I, I also had never really been into film that much. I'd just been more like enjoyed going to the movies, but I didn't really think about it that in depth until I met my husband and he, he makes films and so that's made me 
um, like pay more attention to like the psychology and these in these sorts of things and just the industry in general. But writing about it, I've been thinking about um, how it's such an immersive experience compared to like other forms of art, where like all art, if it's good, like evokes this kind of emotional reaction or or gets to you in some way. But in film, it's such an immersive experience going to the cinema and being in the dark, and it's like you're like completely enveloped by this artist's vision. Exactly. Yes. Beautifully put. Absolutely. Yeah. You're you're engulfed in almost as, it's as if it's really like glimpsing into their mind a little bit. Like you're kind of you're sort of absorbed into their imagination, and it's 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 quite it's kind of amazing, and that's why I love the cinematic experience more than anything else because there's no distractions you really achieve this suspension of disbelief you you know you are there in that moment you're you're bearing witness to something um whereas now you know i know that some people obviously have a very diversified way of consuming films and sometimes it's tablets or other devices outside of a cinema but i i i actually remain quite hopeful and optimistic about the future of of good old fashioned like you know, cinemas, because I think nothing really can compare to that sensory deprivation of entering into that world. Yeah, exactly. And you're not going to look at your phone and you're not going to get distracted by something going on in the house or other people. It's like everyone has to turn off their phone and be quiet and be in the film together. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. That's my happy place. Yeah, and it's great, and and also like you're getting immersed in the imagination of the of the filmmaker, and then also you can kind of identify with all these different characters and like take on these different personas uh, while it's going on. What are your favorite filmmakers? Oh, that that's a good question. Um, we've been watching a lot of Val Luton. Like we've been on this kind of uh, like 1930s, 1940s film noir kick lately. Um, and I'm also, I'm writing a book, well, I'm editing a book, which if you have any interest in Ingmar Bergman, uh, uh, you're welcome to contribute to, because I'm editing a book of like psychoanalytic perspectives on Bergman's films, because what? I just, I moved to Sweden last year, about a year ago, and it's like, what does a psychoanalyst do when she moves to Sweden? It's like, she <laughs> makes a psychoanalytic book about Ingmar Bergman. That's the thing to do, right? <laughs> it would be uh, rude not to. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It's the least I can do. Um, and we're actually working with like the Swedish Film Institute to get like stills from the film to use as images. So it's going to be more like an art book. Um, exciting. Yeah, so that's what I'm going to spend like all winter doing. We got this huge box set of like all of his films and shorts and everything, and I'm just going to like immerse myself in Bergman. It's like an initiation. That's amazing. Well, that is a really good way to spend the winter. That's that's wonderful. Yes. Yeah, so if you and or Sarah are interested in in that, you know, you're both welcome uh, to contribute. Thank you very much. Thank you. I, I'll surely I'll mention it to her. Um, yeah. That's and I, I mean to be honest, I'm I, my uh, gateway to Bergman was actually Tarkovsky because I didn't really know that much about Bergman until I started watching Tarkovsky films and read a lot about Tarkovsky and his, read his interviews and he just regarded Bergman in such a, you know, um, in, in such a high way. So, and then I really made that discovery and it was amazing. Yeah, and they have, uh, he lived on an island, uh, like near Stockholm and, um, 
that's where a lot of his films were shot and they have a like a festival like a celebration of him every year in the summer so that's oh. where we're going to launch the the book is at the kind of Bergman Fest. Oh wow. Yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah, that's going to be very exciting. <laughs> Who are your favorite directors? Uh um I can't choose my absolute favorite. There are too many, but I feel like my top five are. Um, I love Darren Aronofsky. Mm -hmm. uh, I love Stanley Kubrick, David Lynch, uh, Lars von Trier. Mm. I absolutely adore him. And I'd say uh, probably Catherine Breillat. She, she's, um, she, yeah, she's quite cool. I quite like her. What does she do? I haven't heard of her. Um, she, she's sort of regarded as, she's given sort of a label of enfant terrible, you know, like in, in France. Uh, she, I don't know how she feels about that. She probably hates it. Um, <laughs> but she's, I think she's sort of regarded in a very similar way to how people view Lars von Trier as if she's like a trickster or a bit of a sort of, I don't know, provocateur or something. But I think she's trying to do something much more nuanced than all of that. Her, a lot of her films are quite, are, are like extremely graphic, like sexually graphic. Um, so she's made films like Anatomy of Hell, Romance, um, The Last Mistress. These are some of her titles. And she often tries to like work through a lot of issues related to like female sexuality in cinema work out a lot of taboos to do with like feminine desire and ex social expectations around female sexuality um but in a in a very she has very much her own vision um and she's extremely daring um which i love she often works with uh professional people from the pornographic film industry so she will she has collaborated a couple of times with Rocco Sofredi for example the Italian porn star so yeah because she doesn't she sometimes doesn't have like simulated sex scenes you know it's like actual sex taking place between the performers so um, yeah she's sort of very no hold, holds bar about that because of that I think the tabloid press in France have sometimes um, you know Put her under the spotlight and stuff, but I don't think she's really phased by anything like that. She's she, she's very autonomous. That sounds great. I wrote down all the titles so that I can now watch these films. Uh, I think I have a hunch that you'll quite like Anatomy of Hell <laughs> because it is just that is pure raw psychoanalytic filmmaking. Uh, I don't know how well versed she is in all of these ideas. I think she she sounds very. She's extremely bright, and I think she is quite au fait with a lot of philosophical traditions from her country. So it wouldn't surprise me if she had read Lacan, for example, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You'll yeah. love her. And that's the other thing is that, um, you know, we're so, I mean, psychoanalysis looks at us. So it's like people don't have to necessarily know the literature to, to uh, enact it or know what's going on or like portray things that are very uh, psychoanalytically minded. True, absolutely. Um, have you seen this movie Hereditary? Yes, I have. What do you think of this? 
Um, when I first watched it, I didn't absolutely love it because I, I felt that I couldn't stop thinking about some of the plot holes and issues like structurally in the story. Mm. But actually, I grew to appreciate it more. I, it did have a strong horror effect on me. Um, so I felt it was effective as a horror film and it was, there was a few genuine scares. Um, I love Toni Collette in it. She was so good. She was so good. Yeah, she was great. I love the final scene. I thought that was very well staged. Um, I, I actually, in my personal opinion, I actually prefer Midsummer, his second film. Um, I thought that was much better as a film, much more like accomplished with a much better inherent, like in, internal, like integrity, um, and work better as an allegory for me. But I did really like Hereditary. I think over time it grew on me a lot more than I when I first watched it. What about you? Yeah, I actually saw Midsummer first. So since you know they, we actually celebrate Midsummer here in Sweden. Um, so of course when this film came out, we were like, oh, we have to see this and. Uh, and my husband's Swedish and he said, you know, this, these ideas of like people jumping off of the kind of cliff like that, that's actually accurate. And people, you know, used to do that and everything. So he felt like, because uh, mm -hmm. as a Swede, you know, of course, I was wondering, do you, you know, sometimes people feel offended or, or like things are misrepresented when they look at other cultures. But he was like, no, pretty much that's what people did. <laughs> and um and, you know, we liked it. We both liked it. Uh, he actually liked Midsummer even more than I did. I think I liked it up until the end. The end was, like, too explicit for me, like, of what's happened. And I think I feel the same way about Hereditary, is that it's like, I would have, I like cliffhangers where you don't really know what happens at the end. So mm -hmm. I, I would have liked if they kind of, like, not to give the end of Hereditary away, but if they had just, like, walked into that place and not really explained what happened so that you could wonder, like, what what just ha like what the fuck just happened? You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, that's so true. The, you're right. Sometimes when it's spelled out too much, it gives away the mystery. Yeah, and I think it really hooks you more when you like when you're left like trying to figure it out. But that might be like the Lacanian in me. It's like just cut it <laughs> off. You know. <laughs> Make them keep wondering. But I will say that I really uh, appreciate the originality of his films. Yeah. Like, especially now, I feel like some kind of plots have been, like, repeated so many times, and, like, those both have not. Like, those were both, like, really original, like, storylines, and uh, as far as I know. And, uh, yeah, and I, I kept thinking about them both afterwards, which is always a good sign. Wow, that's really well put. It's so true. Um, he really is a, a unique figure in horror. He, you're right. He doesn't... He's not there to just kind of pay homage and repeat some of the same old structures we've seen. He is really inventive. And that is so, I, I do appreciate that as well. And he's so young. So and I th I'm, I'm hoping that he'll just be a very prolific director. At this rate, he's already made a film every year. So I, 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 I do appreciate that. And it's exciting because I feel like there's such a um, exciting time right now in horror there's so many new there's so much new content coming out and exciting names and up and coming directors and, and performers so yeah it's good who else do you like in horror I absolutely love um, I love some of the older stuff like I love Rosemary's Baby Repulsion all that stuff but 
I also quite enjoy, some, there's some performers that just really stand out to me, like um, this woman called Alex Esso, and she was in, she's in the current Doctor Sleep, which has just come out, which I still haven't watched. Mm. But she was in a film called Starry Eyes. And wow, this film is just like incredible. <laughs> I mean, it's, I don't even know. Yeah, it's, it's incre- it is really good. I highly recommend it to um, you and any of your listeners who are not too squeamish. <laughs> um, but she, it's mainly her. She, she carries, it is an extraordinarily well-made film. I don't want to take away from that. But she is so watchable and so uh, charismatic. And there's just some horror performers who have that quality. And I love the contrast in horror when uh, actors who are ex- who are exceptionally attractive are, are seen to be doing, uh, you know, quite horrific things. And that contrast is interesting to me, like that space and how that brain processes that. Um, and yeah... I, she's great, Alex Esso. She, I hope to see her in many other things. I thought in Starry Eyes she was really um, a true, a, a true uh, star. But I, I hear that in Doctor Sleep she hasn't had had a very big role in that. So maybe I'll have to manage my expectations when I watch it. Um, I do like her, and I love things like uh, I love Aronofsky's film Black Swan. Mm-hmm. That's a great film. Um, yeah. I guess with me, I think, I always think in horror, what I'm looking for is, I love the psychological element. I like, that's the main type of horror that I love, psychological horror, any kind of ontological horror, um, films like Coherence, which is more science fiction horror to do with like parallel universes and split personalities, these kinds of things interest me. So really, I guess what I'm saying is, I like films that depict the experiential reality of psychopathology, really. Absolutely. I really like psychological horror as well. Um, And I'll send you uh, Carl, uh, my husband Carl, he has one feature film, uh, and I'll send you the Vimeo link uh, and see what you guys think, because it's very much, he's actually just cut it down. The first edit was much longer, and I actually loved the really long edit because it was like so tense and had you just like biting your nails and like what is gonna happen the whole time. But I can understand that maybe the general person uh, would rather not feel like that for two hours. <laughs> we we, we want to see this. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but I think it's really, and he shot it in black and white and it's, so it's very like, uh, I don't know. I really like it. I really like it. I'll send it to you. So much, I would love to watch it. And um, yeah, and you're saying it's a feature film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great, yeah, we're, we'd love to see it. Thank you. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, yeah, I really like psychological psychological thrillers. Yes. If they have gore, that's okay too. But I don't. I'm not so into the just gore for gore's sake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what else have you uh, talked about at the Freud Museum? Um, yeah, I guess uh, in terms of my content, I sort of divided up between um, topics that can sometimes lift up the material coming from the exhibitions that they have planned. So for example, the uncanny or eroticism or hysteria, various things that have 
um, we've encountered throughout the years, but also just themes around like, um, you know, surrealism in cinema or uh, the, the, the unconscious. That's a big, that's a big topic, but um, sort of breaking it down to various things like memory and trauma, you know, these kinds of things, all depicted in cinema. Sometimes it's by genre, and other times it's by auteur, so just specializing on one filmmaker's vision and developing that into a course. Um, in my experience, uh, all the ones that focus on Lynch are the most popular. I mean, his name is just gold dust. <laughs> we, we, you know, the mere mention of his name in the program, and it really gets a lot of attention. So. He, is, he really is wonderful. Uh, I cut my cinematic teeth on Lost Highway. I went to see that at the cinema when I was 17. And I loved it. <laughs> it was great. Absolutely. No, of course, he's he's classic. And, uh, and I love that you're bringing psychoanalytic ideas to people like through something they enjoy, like cinema. Because as much as I love psychoanalysis, like... Uh, you know, as a profession, um, I've really found that like the institutes and in academia, it's like so closed and it's so available only to this like very small uh, niche of people who study it and write about it. But like I, my whole mission the past few years is like to get the ideas out there to other people that are not psychoanalysts because I find like um, the people really resonate with them because you know it's reflected in their own lives and. Um, when they can kind of see it at play, either through art or film or, uh, you know, whatever, it, it really, um, I don't know, it makes a shift. And it, if it can help, that makes me happy. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you. Um, that was something that I also, I remember before I set up the Projections Lecture Series, um, I, I was kind of hungry for that type of um, knowledge and content out there in a in a way that was kind of exciting and um, a little bit inspiring, not necessarily too daunting, because sometimes with psychoanalysis people feel a bit, I think in some circles, I think people are feel a bit intimidated, you know, like, what is this? You're going to get in my head. I don't want that, you know, like, so there, right away there's some defensive responses too, which I can understand. Mm -hmm. And so in my opinion, the film medium was the perfect, at least for me, the perfect vehicle for introducing psychoanalysis as an idea to people that would have otherwise probably never really uh, bothered to engage with it because it might have not compelled them, you know? Um, so in my experience, the people who come to my courses, because I, um, I collect some feedback from them and I, and I get some sense of like their age and their background a little bit and their level of interest, and I've found that People are coming to courses that really they've they have no no background like no exposure at all to psychoanalysis and they're reporting back a real uh, excitement and exhilaration at having discovered something that they want to read more about. So it that's the, that's I think the thing that really motivates me and fulfills me because um, of course. It is also very rewarding to talk to people in your own field and communicate and exchange ideas with the people who are already, of course, converted just like you and 
um, that's always wonderful to, to develop the, those communities. Um, but I also just, yeah, I, I guess I'm, I like being in a position of maybe be, um, performing and, and fulfilling more of a kind of introductory uh, role as well to people who, yeah, like would have probably never encountered like the concept of the primal scene, you know, mm-hmm. and you see that enacted in a film like Eyes Wide Shut, you know, it's just that, that it, just to see their eyes light up and they make this, they join those dots and they, they think of their own experiences. I just love that. I can't get enough of it. It's, it's so cool to me. <laughs> I love that as well. Did you do a series on the primal scene? Not a whole series, but when I uh, talked about, I did a, I did a series on erotic cinema at the Ford Museum, and there, there was an entire session devoted to the primal scene in cinema. So, yeah. That's amazing. It was cool, yeah. <laughs> Do they record your talks and, like, put them on their podcast, or...? Um, I don't think they... No, they don't do it systematically. They, 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 there's a couple of recordings. I think they're from the very early sessions that I did. Um, but no, there's no, like... It's not done every time. Because also now the structure of their courses have changed at the museum, where before it used to be, like, um, six weeks, of like two hour sessions every week. And now it's entire day courses, so they're more intensive days. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, in, for, for that reason, it's more logistically difficult, I think, to get the podcast material together and yeah. Well, I just feel like uh, there, I don't know, if you like making videos, it would be amazing to like have your lectures somewhere where people could, you know, <laughs> buy them or watch them, rent them or whatever, like on Vimeo or something like that, you know, because I would love to watch all of these things. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much. I think I need to maybe broach the subject with the museum because you are right. We do get that feedback, especially on social media um, from people all over the world who follow the Ford Museum page. And they tell us that, you know, they're like, oh, where can we get access from like remotely, you know, and maybe webinar series or whatever. So actually, you, you've really um, reignited my, <laughs> my enthusiasm to bring this topic up again, because I think it is, maybe, maybe we can do more with that. Yeah, I think it would be a hot, a hot topic. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, well, I, I will bring it up. I will bring it up. <laughs> now we have a lot of assignments for you. Right? <laughs> now you need to write a chapter for the book. Watch this film. <laughs> Get your stuff online for people to see. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no, but it's really great. And I do think, like, um, you talk about psychoanalysis and projections on the screen, like the cinematic screen, but I think this, like, day and age of technology where everybody has a screen, whether it's their phone or their iPad or their computer or their television, um, I think people are seeing more or understanding these concepts of like projection and like um, how people project their image to others, how others project things onto them. I think it's like more evident than it was before we were all so immersed in this kind of technological world. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and particularly something like Instagram, you know, um, and the choices that, we, the daily choices we make in terms of uploading images, because it's just the grid of images. You know, so it's it's 
purely a spectacle. And I don't say that in a denigrating way. I love Instagram. I think it's great. Um, but yeah, th those mechanisms of, of the, the choices that we make to curate the image that we present outward, out, outwardly is, frankly, it's a fascinating thing to study and to interest, inter, introspect about. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and people in performance or like advertising, they've been using this for a long time. And it's like people have been affected for, by it culturally for a long time through those sorts of things, through the film and media and advertising. But now we're also able to do to contribute to it. You know, we're doing it, too. So people can see more like how all of these things uh, play out in action in real life. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there anything else that we didn't get to that you want to make sure to talk about? Um, there was, I just wanted to, um, yeah, just say that it, it has been so interesting for me in the last year, um, kind of arriving at certain realizations in terms of where I get my, you know, sort of like therapeutic uh, what serves as a therapeutic role for me and uh, I was in analysis for just under a year myself for the first time and I ended up terminating the analysis because uh, I realized I'm incurable no just kidding um, <laughs> Just enjoy your symptom. I enjoy my symptom, exactly. <laughs> no, I, I ended up ter terminating the analysis because um, I realized that the, it, actually the therapeutic bond had been um, broken um, and there was no trust and mm -hmm. I, couldn't, I couldn't continue. But um, afterwards, you know, I reflected a lot and I thought I, I was sort of in, I guess I was caught up in the, just kind of um, thinking about, well, who will I choose next? Who will be my next person that I seek out for analysis, you know? And and I, I, that period kept like expanding and expanding and I still wasn't finding anyone. And, and then I realized, wait a minute, the cinema is my, my analyst, you know? Um, and I don't mean that to say, I, I don't mean, I don't mean that in a, in a kind of, glib way to say that everyone should just stop seeing an analyst and just go to the cinema. It's a very, very personal thing for me because of the way I happen to relate to the cinema and because of my lectures and because my research mind is always on and I'm always generating ideas and working through ideas constantly that stem very much from my own personal like history and makeup. And, and I just have that very self-aware disposition when I watch films. So in, because of that, the cinema has happened to serve a very specific role, a therapeutic role for me. And it's allowed me to have catharsis and, um, and freedom to work and, and have, you know, live as well as I can. So um, when, I can, when that kind of clicked into place for me, and I realized what I what I achieve through through the film mechanism. 
that was I felt it felt quite liberating. And then I kind of realized, actually, I, I'm just going to give up my search now. I, I already had something that I didn't need to neglect, you know. Um, and it was also really interesting because when I was in analysis, I didn't feel compelled to, to go to the cinema as much as I used to. Mm-hmm. Like I just, I realized that the two are very connected for me. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes sense, and that's wonderful. And I think. Um, at the end of analysis, that's really what people often come to kind of terms with. It's like, you know, it's it's really good to like look at childhood things and like see how like old patterns are playing out in your life so that people can kind of get out of those kind of stuck patterns if they're feeling stuck or if they feel like they're repeating something that's really their parents' problem and not necessarily their own problem and that sort of thing, get distance from it. Um, but at the end of the day, like, your symptoms might uh, get a lot better and more manageable, but like you'll still kind of find yourself having the same uh, setbacks once in a while. And it's it's kind of instead of like thinking that everything's going to change and be wonderful, it's kind of getting to the place where you just see yourself doing like, oh, I did that thing again, and just kind of being like, well, that's how I am, and just continuing to move on instead of that's- like being so upset with yourself or beating yourself up that you did this thing that you that you do, because you probably do it for a reason. You know, there's like a there's a function to it, even if it doesn't seem like it's what you want to be doing at that moment. There's a reason that we're doing what we're doing. So that's why I say, like, at the end, like, being able to kind of just enjoy the way you are and, like, work with yourself instead of trying to, like, nail yourself down into some other model is, like, that's as good as it gets. And if you have, like, a creative outlet or something that's creative that also facilitates work and, like, enjoyment and learning, then, like, wonderful. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Exactly. Work with yourself instead of work against yourself. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Mary Wilde, Freudian cinephile and host of Projections, a series of psychoanalysis and cinema at the Freud Museum London, and co-host of Projections Podcast with Sarah Cleaver. For more, please follow her on Twitter, Instagram, and follow the podcast. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l your support is greatly appreciated